everybody. Welcome. Um, this is the last class, I think, of the whole lecture. So thank you for being here. Uh, my name is Neil Reynolds. Let me give you a little bit of context. So I'm the senior minister at the University Church of Christ in Tuscaloosa, Alabama, and I've been there for about two years. Let me give you a little bit of my background, too. My life was really changed as a college student through campus ministry. Chris, who is here, he taught the first class in this series. He was my campus minister. And as a sophomore in college, I was in the middle of a, a faith crisis, really. And on a really difficult day, happened to be the day that Chris knocked on my door, and that really started just a wonderful relationship between the two of us. Helped me tremendously through that season of my life, and I apprenticed in campus ministry and um, kind of inherited from him a vision of planting campus ministries across the country. Um, so in addition to what I do at university, I'm also Pathways Director for Kairos Church Planting, but it's really recruiting young leaders and helping put them on a path to stepping into the mission that God's calling them to. So I've been at University Church for about two years, as I said before, and using a lot of church planting principles. It's kind of a revitalization project, and we really have been relaunching the campus ministry, which had really dwindled um, over the last several years, and so we're replanting a lot of that. So we certainly have not arrived. I don't want to give that impression at all, but I do want to share with you some things that are motivating and kind of the heart behind what we're doing. So I'll, I'll begin by telling you this. Last year on Easter, we had a big day. It was one of those days where we had about 90 people over our average, uh, which is pretty typical on Easter. But something really devastating happened. I mean, we want to get people's contact information through our Connect cards. Many churches have those. And on this particular day, not a single person filled out a card. We had 90 people over our average, and no one filled out a card. And what we realized, the problem was, we didn't give people pens. There were no pens. Uh, in our auditorium, it's really kind of a gym auditorium, so you have to set the chairs every week. So there aren't pens that just stay in the back of the pews in some places. So on the heels of that, we spent a lot of money to buy these deals that you screw on the back of the chairs that you can put pens in. And we just realized that it was you know, kind of our fault. We made it too difficult for people. Well, we had another big day this past Easter. Uh, that one stuck with me for a year, literally. I, I thought about that one quite a bit. And we had another big day Easter and had 247 Connect cards because we put, wow, <laughs> <laughs> we put a Connect card and a pin on every single chair. And so what we did was we essentially just made it easier for people. I'm sure your mind may go to something as you think about a time when you just made it too difficult for people to do something. That's a pretty harmless story. But then there are some other instances where, if we're honest, the people of faith have often made it difficult for people to come to faith. Think about a friend of mine, actually our campus minister at, uh, at UCC, knows of uh, some family members at a church and there was a girl, young adult, came in and she was wearing a dress, I think, where you could see her shoulders and she had a tattoo on one of her shoulders and one of the greeters asked her to leave because her 
her dress was inappropriate and you could see this tattoo. You know, and our hearts break when we hear stuff like that. An isolated situation, but then you think maybe about things like the Crusades, which for many, many years have been one of those things that's a, a, a black eye on the church. And so you see these things over and over again, that it's often the people of faith who make it more challenging for people to come to faith. And you know, you've been there before if you've been in ministry, you're trying to do something new, you're trying to create an environment that attracts people, and then you receive those things. I mean, I hate to hear stuff like this. There's a few phrases I just hate to hear. When someone comes to me and they begin by saying, you know, people are saying, you know, or they come to you and say, you know, there are a lot of people who feel like. I'm really not interested in hearing people are saying or a lot of people feel like, but you've been there before. And externally, when you're trying to move a church in a direction to prioritize mission and reach people, there's often conflict that happens. You've experienced it. I've experienced it. That's what's going on outwardly, but inwardly, it can leave you feeling with this sense of, of frustration, right? And maybe sometimes it's hopelessness that just don't know if we're going to be able to get to where I feel like God is calling us to be. You've been there before. I've been there before. You've been in that environment where peacekeeping is the greatest good, right? You try to move things forward, move things forward, and it's all about peacekeeping. You guys will love this comment. This comes from Ed Friedman in his wonderful book called A Failure of Nerve. And I love this. He says, in any type of institution whatsoever, when a self-directed, imaginative, energetic, or creative member is being consistently frustrated and sabotaged, rather than encouraged and supported, what will turn out to be true 100% of the time, regardless of whether the disruptors are supervisors, subordinates, or peers, is that that person, or maybe in our governance, that group of people, that person at the very top of the institution is a peacemonger. By that I mean a highly anxious risk avoider. Someone who's more concerned with good feelings than progress. Someone whose life revolves around the axis of consensus. A middler. Someone who is so incapable of taking well-defined stands that his disability seems to be genetic. Someone who functions as if she had been filleted of her backbone. Someone who treats conflict or anxiety like mustard gas. One whiff, on goes the emotional gas mask, and he flips. Such leaders are often nice, if not charming. You know, we've been there before because that's the norm in many churches. We choose preference over purpose. We choose maintenance over mission, uh, and we choose default over design. You know what that's like, and I know what that's like. And so what I want to do is share with you some things that I've learned and am learning about how to create an environment that's not that way, where that isn't the case. Specifically, for our context, we're talking about reaching college students with the good news. But I think these things apply to whoever it is you're trying to reach, whether they're college students or a certain demographic in your community. I think these things apply universally. But so let me say this. Some of you may have some 
background in campus ministry, we have this uh, dynamic in our fellowship with our campus ministries. Many of them operate like parachurch organizations. They kind of operate on the campus separate from churches. And there is this sort of dichotomy that exists there where there are some ministries that are church-based, but many of ours function like parachurch organizations. And as a former campus minister, I think if our campus ministers were just really, really honest and they gave you their unfiltered opinion, think they like to function as parachurch organizations because then they can keep an arm, arm's length from the church. Because what I believe is that a church sets the ceiling for what's possible in a campus ministry. And a lot of people have asked me over the last couple of years, what's it been like leaving campus ministry? And I don't feel like I've left campus ministry. I feel like what my role to do is to raise the ceiling for what's possible with us in reaching college students. So that's my role in this process. Now, as far as what's better, church-based or parachurch, I really don't want to get into that discussion. Sometimes people will say things like, um, the church is the hope of the world. I don't think that's said quite right. I would say that Jesus is the hope of the world. And the church is the vehicle through which he's delivered to the world. I mean, what happens in the New Testament? I mean, it's a church planting story. What happens after Jesus gives the disciples the Great Commission? They go to the ends of the earth, planting churches that plant churches that plant churches that plant churches. And so we obviously need both, but if the church is raising the ceiling for what's possible with campus ministries, I think we can do more. I thought a lot about how I would do this, and I thought about just giving you some practical how-tos but I'm not going to end up doing that today. There's some great resources out there for you. Um, I, for one, think that environment and the way your space looks on Sunday and other gatherings really matters. So there's a great book uh, that Barna put out called Creating Space for Millennials that is even about architecture and design, which I think is important. Tom Rainer has done some great work on reaching millennials. Um, Carrie Newhoff has a blog and podcast. There's just a dearth of information out there about that. But let me be frank with you. When you get to the point of just the practical how-tos, you've gotten to the easy part and you've gotten to the fun part. That's really not the challenge. The challenge is for you to determine the why it's so important. And the challenge is to consistently be able to communicate to people the why because we so often forget the why. And I think there's no better place for us to look than the first century church to see how they did this. I love the book of Acts. In fact, I heard, I think it was Rick Ashley say several years ago, that every generation has a decision to make about the book of Acts. They either have to decide if it's a picture of the church when it was operating in its heyday, or it's a vision for what's possible in this generation. And I just so desperately want to believe it is a vision for what's possible for us today. I don't think it's a relic, but it casts a vision for us for what's possible. So we're just going to study through Acts 15 this afternoon. I think there's no passage that's more important when it comes to how we engage practically in mission. So Acts 1 verse 8, Jesus kind of gives the call to the disciples and he says, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. In the book of Acts, it follows this pattern. So in the first seven chapters of Acts, Luke details what happens in Jerusalem. And then in chapters 8 through 12, 
Luke tells us what happened in Judea and Samaria. And then from chapters 13 to 28, Luke tells us how the message about Jesus went to the ends of the earth. And so it follows this statement of Jesus as he says, you're going to be my witnesses to the disciples. And in Acts chapter 10 and 11, you see that the church is struggling with an issue. And they're still struggling with it in Acts chapter 15, in fact. So this is when Peter goes to Cornelius' house, and Cornelius is converted. I need to say this at this point. The first century church was an ethnically and racially divided place. There was racial tension in the air in the book of Acts. You just can't get away from that. And God made it clear that he was accepting Gentiles, that he was welcoming Gentiles into his family. And what's interesting about Acts chapter 10 and 11, we often refer to it as Cornelius' conversion, but just as much as anyone, Peter was converted on that day. Peter was converted because he realized that God accepts people from every nation. And so by the time we get to Acts chapter 15, there are a couple of questions that are still central, two in particular. Here they are. The first one is, do male Gentiles have to be circumcised to be saved? This is one of the hot-button topics in the first century church. Do male Gentiles have to be circumcised to be saved? And then second is, can Jewish Christians eat with Gentile Christians? Can those who are Jewish and Christian, can they eat with Gentile Christians? And as I said before, I really don't think there are many chapters, if there are any, that are more important than this one in terms of how we practically live out the mission of God. So Acts 15, starting in verse 1, uh, is what Luke tells us. He says, certain people came down from Judea to Antioch and were teaching the believers. Unless you are circumcised, according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. This brought Paul and Barnabas into sharp dispute and debate with them. So Paul and Barnabas were appointed, along with some other believers, to go up to Jerusalem to see the apostles and elders about this question. So there are really three things about these, these first two verses that you need to know as we unpack this whole scene. So they're saying that, some of the Jewish Christians are saying, unless you obey the law of Moses, you can't be saved. You cannot be right with God if you don't obey the over 600 commands in the law of Moses. And so for these Jewish Christians, circumcision was seen as the covenant moment for them. It was the covenant moment at which their lives were sealed and they were connected to God. And they were saying, unless that happens, you can't be right with God. And then second, Luke tells us that they come into sharp debate and dispute with one another. So there was conflict in the first century church, right? I mean, some serious conflict. It says they're in sharp debate and dispute with one another. And let me just give you a little bit of color for what this debate and this dispute may have been like. Later, Paul would say this in Galatians chapter 5, and some of you may even be surprised that this is in the Bible, as Paul was writing about this issue, Galatians 5, 11, and 12, as for those agitators, I wish they would go the whole way and emasculate themselves. And that adds some flavor to the debate and the dispute for you. Paul says, I wish they would just keep cutting. And then the third thing I think that we really need to take away from these first few verses is that what we believe and what we teach 
really matters. It matters tremendously. Because notice that Paul and Barnabas, they leave this incredibly successful mission to go to a theological debate in Jerusalem. They leave what they're doing on the mission field and come to meet with these other believers. And so teaching the truth was important to them. And I'll just say at this point, there are times when I'm concerned that as we move forward or we're trying to press on certain things, we're trying to create an environment that is conducive for reaching college students or anyone else, I'm concerned at times that we're not wrestling with Scripture the way that we need to. I'm concerned at times that we're maybe a bit dismissive with Scripture. But that wasn't the case with Paul and Barnabas. I mean, they come, and this is important to them, for them to gather and for them to have this discussion. In verse 3, it says this, The church sent them on their way, and as they traveled through Phoenicia and Samaria, they told how the Gentiles had been converted. This news made all the believers very glad. And when they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church, the apostles and elders, to whom they reported everything God had done for them. Then some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees stood up. So they're in this gathering. They're having this summit of sorts. And some of the Jewish believers who are Pharisees stand up and say, the Gentiles must be circumcised and required to keep the law of Moses. It's like they're saying, this is our heritage of faith, and therefore it has to be their heritage of faith. This is really important to us, and therefore it has to be really important to them. It's essential. And there's no question that this was a rude awakening for the Jewish Christians. Whenever they heard that Gentiles were going to be embraced by God, they must have thought it wasn't going to challenge all of their traditions like this. Have you ever been in a situation where you realized after committing yourself to something that it was going to be much more challenging than what you actually thought it was going to be. Uh, there's this great book I've read recently called Canoeing the Mountains. It's written by a guy named Todd Bolsinger. And the whole basis of the book is about the Lewis and Clark expedition out west. And so they took canoes with them up into the Rocky Mountains because they were expecting there to be a waterway that led to the Pacific Ocean. See, their assumption was that the topography would be the exact same on the west as it was on the east. And so they're carrying these canoes literally through the mountains. And along the way, they realized this isn't what we thought it was going to be. This is more challenging than what we thought it was going to be. No question, the Jews in the first century are thinking that. They didn't realize that all of their traditions, their whole faith, their whole heritage was essentially going to be done away with. And so they stand up and say, listen, they've got to be circumcised just like us. And so here's how the discussion goes. Verse 6, the apostles and elders met to consider this question. After much discussion, Peter got up and addressed them. Brothers, you know that some time ago God made a choice among you that the Gentiles might hear from my lips the message of the gospel and believe. God, who knows the heart, showed that he accepted them by giving the Holy Spirit to them just as he did to us. So when Peter goes to Cornelius' house, they received the Holy Spirit prior to baptism I believe because Peter had to see something miraculous in order to accept them. He was so biased that he would not have accepted them as fellow believers unless he saw something miraculous. And so Peter says that's what happened. And then in verse 9, he did not discriminate between us and them, for he purified their hearts by faith. Verse 10, now, now then, why do you try to test God by putting on the necks of Gentiles a yoke that neither you nor our ancestors have been able to bear? And he says, no, we believe it's through the grace of our Lord Jesus that, you are, that, uh, that we are saved, just as they are. 
It basically stands up and says, why would we require them to obey all of these laws? We haven't been able to do it yet. So why would we ask them to do that? Why would we ask them to do all these things? Because we haven't even been able to live this out yet. And so Peter makes that case to the group and says, we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone. There is nothing else that saves us. And so let's not require anything else of them. And so Peter puts that to bed. We're saved by Jesus and by nothing else. But then the question still hangs. What do we require the Gentiles to do? Yes, we're saved by Jesus alone, but what do we require of them? Verse 12. The whole assembly became silent as they listened to Barnabas and Paul telling about the signs and wonders God had done among the Gentiles through them. When they finished, James spoke up. Brothers, he said, listen to me. Simon has described to us how God first intervened to choose a people for his name from the Gentiles. The words of the prophets are in agreement with this, as it is written, After this, I will return and rebuild David's fallen tent. Its ruins I will rebuild and I will restore it, that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord, even all the Gentiles who bear my name, says the Lord, who does these things, things known from long ago. It is my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. So summing up James's speech, three points really. He says, our experience tells us that Gentiles can be right with God. We saw that with Cornelius and his family. And then he says, Scripture confirms for us that this is what God has been doing all along that he has wanted to graft Gentiles into his family. And then this verse is key, verse 19. I think one of the most important verses in the New Testament in terms of missional practice. He says, It is my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. Essentially, here's what he says. We need to remove every unnecessary barrier between people coming to God. We don't need to do anything at all that would make it challenging for a person to follow Jesus, to come and follow Jesus, because following Jesus is challenging enough, and so we don't need to add any barriers there. He says we need to remove these unnecessary barriers between God and people, and I think this is something that we forget. As you think about creating an environment that college students would love to attend, as you think about progressing as a church, I think oftentimes our progress is disconnected from a purpose. And when progress is just about making progress for progress' sake, then all you're doing is being issue-oriented on the wrong side, right? On a different side from what we're used to. It's issue-oriented on the left, that's the purpose of progress. The purpose of change in the church, the purpose of progress is to remove unnecessary barriers between God and people. The purpose of progress is helping people know Jesus. Do you see this? You see that James lays that out? Jesus gets angry when people put barriers between God and people. In Mark 11, this is why Jesus clears the temple. 
Many of you have seen this before up on the board. It's, it's kind of a simple tool that you can use to study the Bible with somebody. And some people refer to it as the Romans road. So Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And then Romans 6.23 is, um, But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. And so here on the left, you draw this up, and it's like the cross is what connects me on this side to God on this side. Now, here's what the Jews are advocating. They're advocating for this. They're saying that, yes, Jesus can get you part of the way to God. He can get you along the way a little bit, maybe even almost all the way. Yes, Jesus can get you almost to God, but then you've got to be circumcised. But then you've got to obey all of the law. Then you have to do all these things. Listen, let's just be clear about this. Jesus plus anything is a false gospel. We are only saved by Jesus Christ. And I'm getting to the point here. We've been guilty at times of this. Um, I'll start with some of the more benign examples that, that you could remember. It used to be, yes, Jesus could save you, but you also have to read the correct translation of the Bible. You know, avoid the NIV, right? That one's kind of old school. It's, yes, Jesus can save you, but you need to dress the right way. You know, no tattoos. We don't need to be able to see your shoulder. Music is a big one. I mean, we have said, literally at times, you cannot be right with God if you don't choose the right music for your assembly. We've said Jesus plus the right music is what saves you. Some of the things that I hear from time to time are, well, but we've got to preserve four-part harmony. Yes, we want people to know Jesus, but preserving four-part harmony and acapella singing is really important. People need to know that. And we hear people say things like, yes, people need to have an appreciation for the restoration movement. They need to love our heritage. Listen, I love four-part harmony. I love our heritage. I love the restoration movement. But what people need to know is Jesus. Period. Nothing else. It's Jesus and nothing else. Else. And so here's my first point. If you want to create an environment that is conducive for reaching college students, you need to be able to answer this question. Do you believe in the exclusivity of Jesus Christ? Do you believe that Jesus is the only thing that can save a person? Do you believe that a person is lost if they don't know Jesus? And no matter what you believe about the afterlife, whether you believe in eternal punishment or whether you believe in total annihilation of the body, to me that doesn't really matter. It's like we've gotten to the point to where we think if you don't know Jesus, you know, we would like for you to, but it's not devastating. Listen, it is devastating for a person to not know Jesus. It's the most devastating thing that can happen to a person. And so that's the first thing that I think we have to decide. Why is it worth creating an environment that college students love to attend? 
it is worth creating an environment that college students love to attend, that their next generation loves to attend, because if they don't know Jesus, they will be lost. That's the why. And if we don't believe in the exclusivity of Jesus, we lose the urgency we need to make the changes that we have to make in order to reach people. Because the purpose of progress is reaching people with the good news about Jesus. And so that's the first question. Do you believe in the exclusivity of Christ? So it still remains, you know, how do you make decisions about these sorts of things? So after the council, they end up writing a letter. And uh, look at what they say, starting in, in verse 24. And I'll just read the whole thing in verse 23. They send this letter to apostles and elders, to your brothers, to the Gentile believers in Antioch, Syria, and Cilicia. Greetings. We've heard that someone out from us, without our authorization, has disturbed you, troubling your minds by what they said. So we all agreed to choose some men and send them to you with our dear friends Barnabas and Paul, men who risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, we're sending Judas and Silas to confirm by word of mouth what we are writing. Now remember, centuries and centuries of history, the entire law of Moses, uh, over 600 commands, circumcision, all that whole thing, can we eat with Gentile Christians, all that, here is what they decide after the Jerusalem Council. Here it is. Here's where they land. Verse 28. It seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us not to burden you with anything beyond the following requirements. You are not to abstain from food sacrificed to idols. You are to abstain from food sacrificed to idols, from blood, from the meat of strangled animals, and from sexual immorality. You'll do well to avoid these things. And with that, the law of Moses for Christians went away. He says, here's three things that seem good to us in the Holy Spirit that you kind of go with. So the way that we make decisions about these things is sometimes it's just left to discernment. I love this statement. In essential beliefs, we have unity. In non-essential beliefs, we have liberty. In all our beliefs, we show love. Now, another application of this passage I think we see at the beginning of chapter 16. Acts 16, the first few verses. Look at what Luke says. It says, Paul came to Derby and then to Lystra, where a disciple named Timothy lived, whose mother was Jewish and a believer, but whose father was a Greek. The believers at Lystra and Iconium spoke well of him. Paul wanted to take him along on the journey, so he circumcised him. So this had this intense debate about what do we do on this? They say, we're not going to require you to be circumcised. Just do these few things. That's what seems good to us and to the Holy Spirit. And then Paul sets out, and the first thing he does when he takes Timothy is he has him circumcised. Verse 3, Paul wanted to take him along on a journey, so he circumcised him because of the Jews who lived in that area. They all knew that his father was a Greek. Here's what I think Paul does. He always keeps the mission in front. 
in every decision he makes, he makes it relentlessly through the lens of mission. Why does he have Timothy circumcised? Because there are Jews in the region where he's going who may not hear the message of Jesus if a Greek stands up who hasn't been circumcised. And so Paul knows it's not required of him necessarily, but because he's a missionary who's a strategist, he has Timothy circumcised before they go into this region to begin preaching. So here's what we have to do if we're going to create an environment that college students love to attend or another demographic in your community that you're trying to reach. We have to relentlessly choose purpose over preference. Relentlessly choose the mission over maintenance. We're married to the mission and we date modes and methods. And here's the thing. We need churches who can do this desperately. We need some existing churches who are in university towns who are willing to make the decision to choose purpose over preference. Who in every decision they make through uh, everything they think through make choices through the lens of purpose. Make choices through the lens of we want to reach these people. We want to reach college students maybe. And so for some of you, maybe that looks like starting a new campus ministry. Chris did a great job talking about this this morning. Uh, there are something somewhere close to 125 campus ministries affiliated with the Churches of Christ. And you compare that to about 6,000 plus universities, trade schools, community colleges in our country. 125 on over 6,000 campuses. We need some churches who catch a vision for reaching college students and are willing to choose the mission, who are willing to choose purpose over preference. We also need some church planters. We need churches who are willing to send out church planters and teams to go to places like UCLA, USC, all over Southern California, there's all kinds of places that need a missional church with a heart for reaching college students. Because honestly, I think one of our problems in our fellowship, the reason why the number is so low, it's a church problem. If there were missionally minded churches in these communities, close to these campuses, we would already be doing things to reach those campuses. So we've got to be planting churches that are designed to reach students with the good news of Jesus. And here's the second thing I'll say. We've got to believe in the exclusivity of Christ. And to do this, here's what it's going to take. It's going to take courage. It's going to take courage. It's going to take leaders who are willing to, to have sharp debate and dispute for the lost who aren't yet a part of our churches. It's going to take courage from us in order to stay firm, to be a voice for those who don't yet have a voice with us. And then I just know there will be some people who say, yes, but our church is this way, or we have this challenge, or we have that challenge. Here's the question we all need to wrestle with. What is the next generation worth to you? 
Jesus is the only thing that saves a person. We're not just sharing something nice with people. We're not just giving them a life coach. We're not just trying to improve their lives a little bit. We're talking about changing their eternal destiny. And so we need to wrestle with that question. How much is that worth to us? And yet I know, I I can hear people saying it. I've heard people say it before. They push back and they say, well, you know, why should we change who we are to reach other people? We have this great heritage. We want people to know who we are. We shouldn't change who we are to reach other people. And there are a lot of good answers to that. I think there are a lot of good answers to that question. Why should we change? And I think the quickest and simplest answer is just to say this. We should change who we are in order to reach people because Jesus changed who he was to reach us. I think of John 1. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life and life and he is the light of men. Think about Philippians 2. Even though he was in very nature God, he did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but he humbled himself. Took on the nature of a servant, became obedient to death, even death on a cross. And you say, why should we choose purpose over preference? Because Jesus chose purpose over preference. Because that's what Jesus did for us. Here's what I'd like to do. I'm going to ask Chris if you would pray um, to pray for our efforts to reach college students across the country as we've been talking about this morning and early afternoon. And I want to ask you to pray, and then we've got a few minutes where we can we can take some questions. As I said before, I know we didn't really get into the practical stuff, but I think it's the why and the courage to follow through on the why. That's the hard part. Once you get that, then the other stuff kind of Chris, you pray, and then we'll we'll talk if anybody's got any questions. Okay, let's pray. Holy Lord God, we we just hope that that our that our generation of this fellowship of believers will once again be invigorated to to be motivated to go to college students go to our campuses, our colleges, our universities, to go to them, not necessarily to expect them to come to us, but to go to their places and do their things in their ways so that we can be all things to all people on these campuses as much as that is possible. Lord, I just want to ask for what Neil has spoken of today and and we just pray for churches, Lord, to be raised up, who would catch this vision, who would, who would begin to, to take very seriously this mission to, to students during this incredibly important season in their lives. We pray that, that there will be leaders for new plants, for new church plants and campus ministry plants that will, that will take others along and go to people who 
who wouldn't otherwise maybe even know who you are at all. Lord, I pray that you give us a burden for all of those students who are passing through those ivy-covered halls every year, not being in any way touched by your people. And we pray that that, that, will, that will change. We pray for, even for Pepperdine University and its role in, in sending out potentially people to go to other universities. We pray for other sister colleges and universities in our fellowship, and we, we pray for existing campus ministry to raise up and train and send people that can go to new campuses to reach new places. Mm -hmm. And Lord, we just pray that um, in you, by, your, by the power of your Holy Spirit, will infuse and empower all of this, that you will give us great vision, that you will help us to dream big. And I want to specifically just ask your blessings, Lord, on the West Coast and on the on, on the, these huge global level universities that exist here in California, all the way up through Oregon and Washington, the, the, the truly global impact that they have. And, 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 and so, Lord, we, we want to ask you to provide leaders and teams and churches and campus ministries that, that have passion for reaching these great powerful and far-reaching universities, the USC's and the UCLA's and the Stanford's and the Oregon's and the Washington State's and all of these campuses, Lord, and all of these students, we lift them up to you, Lord, and we pray that you help us to dream big and that, that, we, uh, and that we have the courage, as Neil said, to move out boldly, courageously uh, toward these students in your name to expand your kingdom on these campuses. And we lift this up and ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks, Chris. Well, let me say this real quick before we talk any. I want to invite everybody to come to the campus ministry dinner that will be in Han Fireside Room essentially as soon as we're done here. It'll be from 4.30 to 6. Um, there are a lot of us here who just love the cause of campus ministry and uh, want to share that and spread the message for the need with as many as possible. So if you're interested in just being with some other campus ministers and being encouraged and learning more about campus ministry, that'll be at 4.30, uh, from 4.30 to uh, 6 tonight. So anybody have any questions or anything before we finish up? more than passages, I, I think of, you know, what are core doctrines. So I think, in, you know, as I mentioned, the exclusivity of Christ, we're saved by grace alone, faith alone, through Jesus Christ alone. Um, you know, there's one God, and there's really pretty small number of those things, honestly. So I think what we do is we, we major in minors, and we, we drift, and we allow things that are secondary to become to become primary. So I do think it's really helpful to 
define what those things are. We're actually in the process of doing that, where we actually put on paper a, a doctrinal statement, you know, basic biblical beliefs, because we don't want to, because what I define one way, you may define another, and so we want there to be an objective standard by which we by which we operate. So I think there's value in doing the hard work of figuring out what those things are in your in your context. So you can say, remember that time we did this, we decided on that. That's not going to be an issue for us. You know, let's lean into the mission. Um, traditionally, what we've said in Churches of Christ is it's just the whole Bible. You know, whereas Jesus said, what's most important clearly is love God and love people. And I'm every time I read it, I'm a little bit surprised that Jesus answered that when he was asked, what's most important. And you would think of anybody, Jesus might say, well, you know, it's all important. I love them all equally. And he often responds to those questions with a question and kind of tries to get out of it. But when he's asked that one, he just says, no, it's love God and love people and everything else hangs on that. So, I mean, those are definitely primary. Anybody else? Questions or comments or anything? Yeah. Go ahead. Others can answer too. So. <laughs> um, just how to get your church on board with mission, just that they can see something higher that they should, that that they are being called to. Um, sometimes it's just very easy to get, like you said, to major and minors and get caught up in things that aren't as important. Are there some practical things that you can that you can tell us to? Well, I mean, I. I can be that way sometimes, you know, I, I can, people complain about something and it feels like a big deal, but it's really not a big deal, I mean, just, um, I think being on the same page is critical, and, and agreeing that we are going to make it a value to choose purpose over preference. So I'll go back to what I said to Daniel, and we're going through that hard process of getting all of that down on paper, so we will have basic biblical beliefs will have core values because there has to be an objective standard otherwise if you and I have a dispute then you know you'll say well no I think this is important and I'll say no I think this is important and that's what happens in churches but there has to be this process we go through where we say no here's what's really going to matter and we're going to do this and so if something comes up you've got to be able to hold one another accountable that this is what we're going to do. But if you don't have that, it's just really hard. Um, because what's significant to some people is what we do or don't put on the screen on a Sunday morning or, you know, having refreshments in the lobby or whatever. And every comment is received with uh, equal weight and equal value. And they just aren't. Uh, Rick actually shared this great story that was just one of those that when you hear it, you think, man, I, I just wish we all had people like that. But since something that they tell at the Hill, there's this woman in the 1970s, and the big issue was donuts and coffee in the Bible classes. And so that was just kind of a cutting-edge thing at the time, and she was really upset about it, and she was complaining about it. And an elder went up to her and put his arm around her and said, you know what, this just isn't a big deal. 
there are about 50 other churches in a five mile radius that don't have that and if and if it's a big deal to you you can go to one of those churches so if you decide that you can be here with us then you just go home this week and when you come back have a good attitude next week when you come um, and so he said now that's become a part of their lore and they look at one another in one of those situations that's challenging if they're being tempted to choose something other than mission and they'll just say to one another coffee and donuts you know, and they just kind of remember that. So I think having language values and the things that you can say that are a standard for you is my opinion. Yeah. Um, so I'm, you kind of already answered this question, and I missed the first little piece of it because you're from Starbucks. And uh, <laughs> you blame all my problems with Starbucks. Um, but uh, I'm curious, what are some things in your ministry that, that you had to tackle that um, provided the most success? Like, what were those things that, and it's probably going to be different in every ministry, or it will be different, but what were some things that you had to, or your church had to let go of to become more inviting to millennials and college students? Um, I know a lot of churches who make the switch instrumental music and I, I don't really care one way or the other about the instrumental music thing. We use this pipe organ. Um, but I'm, I'm curious if that really provides meaningful results or if there are other things that provide meaningful results. Well, you know, it's probably, it probably differs from place to place. Um, for us, one that we're still trying to, to work through is instrumental worship. So we have an acapella gathering and an instrumental gathering and you know, we're, we're still working through that. But over the last two years, the instrumental gathering has grown by an average of 70 people in about, you know, in just less than two years. So our campus ministry has grown tremendously over the last two years. We baptized 14 students uh, last school year. So revamping the campus ministry um, was huge. I don't think I could minimize that. We essentially replanted it, restarted it, and then... Um, uh, have implementing instrumental worship has really helped us. So. Um, let's finish a few minutes early and we can go to dinner. Thank y'all for being here and up late in the afternoon. It's the last class. Thank you guys for coming and, and for paying attention.